0: Thank you uh, for being here. Thank you for giving up your time and your energy to be here this evening. Um, I'll let you know up right up front that, that I didn't publicize an end time, uh, because I don't know when I'm going to be done. So uh, feel free to, if you're like, okay, bro, I'm out. Uh, just get up and leave. If you need to get on to something else, you're not going to offend me or disrupt me at all. Um um, but there is quite a bit of stuff to go through that I want, to, I want, to, I want us to talk about. Um, in preparation for this time, this comes as a response to uh, some very close friends of mine dealing with this issue um, and feeling as though the church has not done a good job of talking about it. Um, it's not done a good job at researching it and handling it in a biblical uh, way full of mercy and grace. And the pendulum seems to swing violently one way or the other to two different extremes. Uh, And so in talking to a lot of my pastor friends, personal friends that are dealing with this issue, some in very personal ways, um, and in, in studying some who may be of the opinion that they call themselves revisionists, a revising Scripture and biblical standard. It's not the term that I use for them, and I'm using the term that they would use of themselves, revisionists. People like Matthew Vines, who wrote a book, God and the Gay Christian, that really got people uh, in great fervor over this. Um, A gay man who who says he loves Jesus and loves the Lord and comes out of a very traditional church background, um, uh, who certainly espouses the idea that one can be... uh, married to the same sex, and still be in line with the Bible and in line with Jesus. Uh, People like Colby Martin, who wrote a book called Unclobbered. I've read both those, and um, uh, he's along the same lines as Matthew Vines. I'll explain the title of that book in just a moment. People like Rob Bell, who came out of an evangelical church as a pastor and has really gone uh, to some extremes. Uh, People like Tony Campolo. Uh, that I very much admired in my younger years as a Christian sociologist Um, and whose son confided in him that he was now an atheist and uh, homosexual and uh, Tony has moved extremely to the other end of the spectrum and so this isn't without a great deal of study and of prayer Um, and so I just want to acknowledge that, that I have dove deeply into both sides. I have for years but much more so as of late. Um, I just want to set the stage for where we're going, this idea of the LGBTQ community. I will refer to that community as LGBT. I don't mean to leave any of the other um, feelings out or identities out, but it's just shorter for me than try to name everything, because it does change uh, rapidly. I'm just going to refer to LGBT. We all know what that means. and just for our own knowledge, the idea of sex is the biological differences between male and female. The reason I go back to the beginning of some of this stuff, because it's, it seems to get a little bit convoluted in this day and age when we talk about sex and gender. Sex is the biological differences between male and female. Gender is the state of being male and female, uh, and the cultural and social roles that come along with that. That's why one can say, I am I may have been born or assigned this sex, but I identify as this gender. And so that's kind of what we're dealing with in this context. Heterosexuality and homosexuality are at two ends of the spectrum. uh, And and two ends of the the sexual spectrum regarding desire and practice and identity. Uh, And they're categories that are included in the LGBTQ plus community. As far as the American population is concerned, um, there's approximately 4% of the American population that identify as LGBTQ, that's it, 4%. Uh, That might not be new news to some of you, it might be shocking to some because it feels like it's a lot greater than that. But 4%, according to the latest Gallup polls, this is not a church thing, it's not a Christian thing, it's just a news reporting thing, 4% identify 5.1% of women and 3.9% of men. That's how they get to to that figure of 4% as a whole. Generationally, The traditionalist generation, which are that generation prior to 1946, and the baby boomers, that generation from 1946 to 1964, there has been a slight decline in the percentage of those generations who identify as LGBTQ. In the generation X, the Gen X, those born from 1965 to 1979, there's been no increase whatsoever in those who identify. The increase that we've seen in our country, as far as those did identifying as LGBTQ, has come from the millennial generation, those born from 1980 to 1999, roughly speaking, and that has gone up to 2. Point, uh, it has gone, has risen 2.3 percent in the last few years, up to 8.1 percent currently, of millennials who identify as LGBTQ. So that's where the, we see the growth coming. And the increase, all the other generations are either stagnant or declining as far as those who who comprise that. The largest jump in those reporting as LGBTQ has been in women from 2016 to 2017. Their percentage went up from 3.5% to 5.1%. It's really interesting to watch the culture as it changes and and morphs. Um, Just some other miscellaneous stuff. Those making less than $36,000 a year are 6.2% would claim to be in the LGBTQ community. Those making above $90,000, that percentage drops to 3.9%. I don't know what you do with that. It's just information. Same thing with education. The highest group reporting as LGBTQ have some college. didn't finish college. They have some college, 4.7%. And the lowest of those reporting to be in the LGBTQ community are those who have postgraduate degrees. And so again, it's just information. So that's the info I wanted to share with you as far as the stats. They mean nothing. If stats mean anything to you, uh, it might mean something. But those are just the stats. What I want to share with you is um, something from a lady named Lisa Diamond. and this is You have that outline there of my PowerPoints. And this is the first one that has text on there. It's probably too small for many of you. <laughs> uh, <laughs> sorry, I couldn't figure out how to make that text bigger. Um, but as far as the science and the biology behind the identification of LGBTQ, as far as the science and identity behind it, Lisa Diamond, she's an author and a professor of gender studies at the University of Utah and an LGBTQ plus advocate. She studies gender fluidity over a lifetime and the influences of it on, uh, on, on sexual development. And she says that claiming, I'm, and this is a quote, Claiming I'm born this way is not scientifically accurate. It it doesn't match with science. Uh, She says that in a 20-year study done of women and sex, women have moved greatly from uh, homosexuality to heterosexuality and vice versa. It's it's not stagnant, she says. That national and international studies example from people, places like Cornell, Harvard School of Health, University of Virginia, have tracked tens of thousands of individuals up to 15 years and discovered that the ones they, 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 they tracked, their sexual attraction was fluid and changed oftentimes. And she says, if it was scientifically accurate to say, I am born this way, if that was a scientific fact and truth, that would mean that being gay was genetic, And if you look at identical twin studies, what that would mean with the exact same genes, when one was born gay, the other would be as well. And the science of it says in twin studies that there may be a 10% correlation when one twin is born gay, the other is as well. That means there's a 90% likelihood that they're not both gay. And And so... An advocate, an LGBTQ advocate, one who studies this from a science perspective, says very unashamedly that to claim one is born gay is not scientifically accurate. So I just want to put that out there, that when you hear people, when, when I hear people say, well, I'm born this way, I understand that might be the feeling of it, but it's not scientific. Do you understand? Here's the rub. When we talk about the idea of homosexuality, for older people, it's an issue. For younger people, it's a person. And that's the rub. The truth is, it's both an issue and a person. It's an issue in Scripture, and there are real people that we know and love who are dealing with this. And so, what I want to do is speak the truth in love. Not speak about an issue, because it involves people, but not simply neglect the issue because I know a person. We have to understand both. And I want to speak the truth in love. Now, here's the thing. It's never right to use the word of God to unlove people that Jesus loves. I have to understand. We have to be clear about that. But looking truthfully at the Bible is not an unloving thing. We have to hold both of those things in, 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 in tension. Proverbs 18.13 says, don't give an answer before you hear. So we have to understand what it is we're hearing to be sensitive to what we're hearing as a church and to give a truthful yet loving response. Is that clear? You understand what I'm saying? There's a lot of talk about sexual orientation. I want to change the discussion maybe to have an orientation of love. Of love for God and love for others. And because I love God, we must tell the truth. And because we love others, let's do it with great mercy and grace. It's an orientation of love. I've been thinking a lot over these last couple of weeks, how would my approach to this change? if one of my sons came to me and said, Dad, I need to tell you something. It's real easy to approach this issue from a biblical standpoint devoid of having someone live in this world. The moment a loved one says, but how about me? It changes perhaps how we address it. And I think those who are on... The end of the spectrum who says thus saith the Lord with great vehemence have got to wrestle with the fact what if someone very near and dear to me says what about me? You understand what I'm saying? Now I agree that the church has in large part held some sins as worse than others and it's usually those sins which, with which the leaders don't struggle with seem to be the worst ones. Uh, and I need to, if I am able to, apologize on behalf of the church for how the church has oftentimes handled what it, can see, what it can, sees as sinners. And if I can, on behalf of the church, ask forgiveness, I do. And many have grown up in the church suffering greatly and felt great shame, especially over this issue some to the point of feeling such shame and such aloneness that they've taken their lives, and that should never be. And for too long, the devil has won in this arena. And so it should never be the case that anyone feels so alone and so lost as if they're unloved and unwanted by the church that they determine death is better than life. And so we need to talk about this and we need to come up with a way to talk about it that is both truthful and loving. That has to be our approach. Now this evening I simply want to look at what the Bible says. That's going to be my starting point and my ending point. I will talk with you and I will reason with you about any issue as long as you talk about it with me from the foundation of Scripture. There's no topic that's off the table. And I'm not afraid to talk to anybody about anything as long as the foundation is Scripture. I will not dive into theory nor opinion tonight. I don't know all there is to know about God and neither do you. And I can be corrected with what I believe as long as you correct me from Scripture. Do you understand? And I hope you're the same. So the issue has got to be always, God, what do you require? God, what is right in your sight? Isaiah 5.20 says, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil. Woe. That means that means you're better off dead. That means don't play with this. If I'm wrong and I'm calling something good evil... I'm in danger. And if you're wrong and you're calling something evil good, you're in danger. you understand? So we better be very clear on what it is we believe and why we believe it. In my opinion, from what I understand from Scripture, the fatal flaw is saying that you can follow Jesus biblically and practice homosexuality. I do not believe that homosexuality is compatible with the Bible. There are many people who interpret the Bible through the lenses of their sexuality rather than interpreting the sexuality through the lens of the Bible. And that's a fatal flaw. And those who do claim something evil to be good. And the warning is be very careful. If we want to follow Jesus, the word from us is to deny ourselves and follow Him. Not affirm ourselves and make the Bible fit how I see myself and follow Him. We have to be very careful. We should all, every one of us, live in a state of self-denial in trying to follow God. The great thing about the Bible is that the Word of God is alive and active. And it's sharper than any double-edged sword. And it penetrates to even dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. And it judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. And this is why it's important, because it cuts through the emotions and the feelings about very emotional topics, which often get in the way of this discussion. And a lot of people I've talked to would say things like, well, there's been a lot of people that are, who grew up in the church that changed their minds about this issue, and it just seems like things are changing. And I've seen people, I know people who love Jesus and practice homosexuality, and that's the problem. Because the church is getting swept away in the cultural shift and changing a biblical stance, and that's dangerous. That's dangerous. And it's amazing... That the Bible, and we'll get into it in just a moment, I'm just kind of setting the stage here, but it's amazing to me that the Bible can repeatedly and categorically speak against a thing, and yet people say, if you do it long enough in a loving relationship, then it turns good. It's amazing to me how it shifts like that. There is nothing, please hear me, there is nothing in the study of linguistics, in ancient Semitic languages, there's no new data, that would change the way the church has always believed what the Bible says about this issue. There's no new texts, there's no new manuscripts, there's no new linguistic data, there's no new archeological evidence that would change anything about what the church has always taught about this issue. There's nothing new, there's nothing new. The reason so many people now question this idea is not because there's new data or new information that has been found or discovered. And it's not because the Bible has been unclear. The reason because that the culture has shifted, so many Christians and churches has shifted, is simply because of what we're experiencing in the culture around us since the sexual revolution has taken place in this country. Now let me be very clear. If the Bible has been unclear about something, you ask God and you seek. But when the Bible is clear, you don't go ask God again. He's already spoken. God has been clear For instance, bestiality, sex with animals, is wrong and forbidden. But what if you really like your puppy? You don't need to ask God for clarification. And since the Word of God is not ambiguous, but rather because of great social pressure, and because we know people that are close to us, that we love, who say that they love God and practice homosexuality, this becomes very difficult to stand firm on. There are a lot of books now being written on this issue. But the fact that a lot of books being written about this issue does not mean the Bible has been unclear. There's a lot of books being written now that God doesn't exist, atheist books, that does not call into question God's existence please let me be clear with you on this. The goal of the homosexual agenda is not the equality of marriage. Don't get confused. The goal of the homosexual agenda is to silence dissent. That's the goal. I have in my possession, I'm not going to take time to share it with you tonight, but I have in my possession a a treatise by two social engineers in 1984, that was published both in 84 and 85, on how they could socially re-engineer our culture, starting with Hollywood, to turn straights in favor of gays. That, their words, not mine. A 10-point plan on how to turn the tide. And it has worked masterfully. And so I'm not saying this from an attitude of arrogance or meanness. I'm using their words their goal is not, the LGBTQ goal is not the equality of marriage and, 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 and equal civil rights. Their, their goal is to silence dissent. And so what I want to do, <clears throat> for those who are proponents of the LGBT community and, and same-sex marriage, they deal with six passages in the Bible that they have termed clobber passages. And we're going to talk about those, clobber passages. There are six passages specifically in Scripture that deal with the issue of homosexuality. Uh, and, and, and the LGBT community has termed them clobber passages because they feel as though they've been clobbered by them by the church, and they have. They're founded, there's three in the Old Testament, three in the New Testament. Deuteronomy 23, Leviticus 18, Leviticus 20, Romans 1, 1 Corinthians 6, and 1 Timothy 1. And so I'm going to, in a moment, talk about all, three, all six of those passages. Because the way they're being interpreted interpreted by very liberal churches, very liberal Christians, and by the LBGBT community is is very much unbiblical. But they sound super convincing. And they make Christians believe who will believe one thing, say, huh, maybe you're right, maybe there's something there. And so I want to address these six passages specifically. Part of the issue that comes up in this debate, in this question, is is this statement, that the Bible says nothing, it might talk about homosexual activity, but the Bible says nothing about loving, consensual, monogamous, same-sex relationships. That's the argument. And that these six passages speak about homosexual activity, but not in the context of loving, monogamous, adult, consensual, same-sex relationships. That's the rub. Everyone would agree, even people on the LGBT side would agree that the Bible is clear against prohibiting certain same-sex activities. And the Bible is clear in its its, uh, disdain for what's called pederasty. Now, pederasty is something that was practiced in ancient times, which is when an older man of power would have a young boy and would teach the young boy the ways of sex by sodomy. And that young boy would serve the needs of an adult man. That's pederasty. And those in the LGBT community would say that the Bible talks about that and how bad it is, and rightfully so, right? But they would say that the Bible does not speak at all about adult, consensual, monogamous, same-sex relationships. So the argument goes like this. If this was such a huge issue to God, out of over 30,000 verses in the Bible why are there only so few that deal with this issue? Why are there only six? Doesn't it seem like if it were a big deal, God would talk more about it? And so most people struggle with an answer to that. If it was such a big deal, he's got over 30,000 verses to talk about it. Why is he only talking about it six times? Well, the answer is, you must understand the problem. The exact opposite is true. The entire Bible presupposes one order, one way, one method of relationship, and only occasionally needs to address anything else. For instance, if I were going to write a cookbook, and, and, and my belief is that sugar is bad, and you should never eat refined sugar, And in the beginning of the cookbook, I say, you will find a lot of recipes in here that don't mention sugar. Because it's so bad for you, I don't want you to eat sugar. Don't eat refined sugar. And then I go on with the rest of the cookbook and you never read the word sugar. Would you suppose that sugar is not a big deal to me? Because you don't read it in the cookbook? What would you know? It's such a big deal I addressed it, and then we don't have to talk about it anymore. Do you understand? That's why six outright passages has been dealt with. And the entire Bible presupposes one way and one order and one context of relationships. The Bible doesn't speak much at all about bestiality or incest. Would we assume that because it doesn't speak much about it, God isn't concerned about it? So the logic doesn't follow. You know, the Bible doesn't speak much about spousal abuse either, so can we assume from that that it's okay to strike your wife? See, the logic doesn't follow, but don't get confused by the rhetoric. It's the cookbook idea. I'm going to say something that for some of you might sound very abrasive. It's not. So just go with me on it. The Bible... Is a heterosexual book now hang with me what i don't mean is that god doesn't love everybody on the planet i don't mean that what i don't mean is that jesus's shed blood doesn't cover everybody i don't mean that what i don't mean is that the bible doesn't apply to everybody i don't mean that what i do mean is that from the beginning to the end of scripture the bible speaks of heterosexual relationships. And heterosexual marriage as the only thing that God has ever ordained. That's what I mean by that. It's not mean. It's just the way it has been given to us by the one who created us. Now, let's get into the Bible. Genesis 1. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the heavens and over the livestock, over all the earth and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God made, God created man in his own image and the image of God. He created him male and female. He created them. God created humankind in his image, male and female. He created them. That's what the Bible says. And then he gave them the command to be fruitful and multiply. And the only ones who can fulfill the command of being fruitful and multiply is the heterosexual couple. This was the design from the beginning. Now the argument to that from homosexual theologians will say, okay, that may have been fine then, but right now there's plenty of people on earth. We don't have to fill the earth anymore. It's too full already. There's no need to multiply and fill the earth, so now there's no harm in same-sex relationships because that command does not relevant anymore. And the 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 answer to that argument is this. It's not an issue with the filling of the earth. It's talking about God's design for humanity to reflect His image. Male and female, He created them. That's the issue. In Genesis 2, Then the Lord God said, it's not good that a man should be alone. I'll make him a helper fit for him. The focus of God was on Adam, that it was not good for him to be alone. The proponents of LGBTQ community would say that he needs a companion so he won't be lonely. That was not the issue with God. God didn't say, I'm going to make you a helper so that you're not lonely. The moment you think that's the issue, then it would seem unfair if God subjected some to a lifetime of loneliness because they were attracted to the same sex and the Bible says you can't act on it. But the issue with God was never that I'm going to make you a helper so you're not lonely. He said, I'm going to make you a suitable helper to fulfill my mission for you in the world. And the only suitable helper for you is the opposite of you because it's a reflection of my identity in the world. See, God, it wasn't that God just didn't want Adam to be lonely. Adam needed a suitable helper where both of them would fulfill God's identity in the world, male and female. That's why he created them that way. So the issue is not the filling of the earth. The issue is not, not that the garden was so big, Adam couldn't do it alone, just needed someone to help out. The issue was the reflection of God's very identity is male and female. That's the way the whole thing started. And for this reason, the Bible says, he will leave his father and mother and cleave unto each other and they would become one. God's picture for humanity is male and female fit together as husband and wife. And so it's not about filling the earth and it's not about not being lonely. It's about the full expression of God himself. The Bible has always and only presupposed heterosexual relationships. Every law about marriage, every law about parenting, every parable, every illustration, I'm not being mean. Please don't mistake truth for meanness. In love, understanding what the Bible says, everything. There's not one single reference to homosexual relationship or activity anywhere in the Bible that's positive. There's not one. Husband, love your wives the way Christ loved the church. Honor your father and mother. It's all heterosexual because that fulfills the image of God, male and female, in His image He created them. There's not one single positive reference in all of Scripture towards homosexual relationship anywhere. Not one parable, not one illustration, not even the trajectory. For instance, when I talk about trajectory, the Bible talks a lot about the male lead and the man taking the lead. Although the trajectory started to change in the judge Deborah when there was not a male who was qualified or able to lead. And Deborah, as the judge, took the leadership. And so the trajectory started to change. Do you understand? Ordained by God. There's not even the trajectory of a change in this issue. Every reference to homosexual activity in the Bible is negative in the strongest possible terms, and it is not ambiguous. And so some in the LGBT community will say, well, what about Jesus? He never talked about homosexuality. It must not be that big a deal to Jesus. Because if Jesus didn't deal with it, it's probably not that big a deal. Here's the response. And I don't know, have any of you heard that? Jesus never talked about homosexuality, so why are you getting so worked up about it? No? You probably haven't talked to many people who deal with this issue then because this is one of the biggest things that is said. To assume, here's, here's the pushback. To assume that, because, that, to assume that Jesus never talked about homosexuality because he didn't care enough about it, you misunderstand Jesus and you have a very small view of what's called Christology and a low view of the Godhead. Because what we understand from Scripture is that the Father is God, Jesus is God, and the Spirit is God, the triune God. If God spoke about it in the Old Testament, Jesus also spoke about it because Jesus is God as the Father is God. Do you understand? They're one God. And all through the New Testament, Jesus affirmed Old Testament law. He didn't change it. So, what did Jesus say about marriage? I think Jesus, in essence, talked about marriage and homosexuality quite a bit. In other words, in Matthew 5, Matthew 15, Matthew 19, Jesus said, you've heard it was said, you should not commit adultery. I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I said to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorce woman commits adultery. Then in, in Matthew 15, do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is expelled? But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart. And this, the heart, the intent is what defiles a person. For out of the heart comes what? evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality. That's the Greek word porneia, which means every sexual act outside of marriage between a man and a woman. Theft, false witness, slander, these are what defile a person, but to eat with an hands has that been filing anyone. All through the Bible, all through the Bible, Jesus confirms, affirms, and identifies The relationship that God has ordained is man and woman. And if he wanted to address any other thing, any other option, he would. He had plenty of opportunity to. The Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, have you not read what he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh? So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Well, therefore God has joined together, let man not separate. God's intent is that a man and a woman would cleave together and become one flesh. That always been his intent. If Jesus wanted to change any of the trajectory, he had plenty of opportunity to in three different occasions, and he chose not to. It's really interesting to me when you understand what he was doing here in another passage, Matthew 19 and also seen in Mark 10. Again, part of what we read from the Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? Watch what he does. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So they're no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God is doing together, no one separate from the beginning of creation. Jesus says God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What God has therefore joined together, no one separate. What he was doing was going all the way back. See, we don't get it in our English text, but Jewish hearers did. He was going all the way back to Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. And he was using that as a foundation, because this is what the text said. Let's make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock and all the earth and every creeping thing that creeps on the ground. Paul's going to come back to this very same passage. The Apostle Paul will. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife are both naked and were not ashamed. Do you see the same words? The exact same words. Jesus defines... Please be clear on this. Jesus defines and affirms that marriage is between one man and one woman. That male and female together are the full reflection of God's image. And nowhere, and He had plenty of opportunity too, and nowhere does Jesus even begin to change the trajectory of the marriage as any other thing than a man and a woman. Nowhere does he ever address it. When he was asked by the Pharisees about divorce in Matthew 19, Jesus went back to Genesis 1, the creation account, and Genesis 2. Joining together, let no one separate. The only passage Jesus needed to go to to answer their questions was Genesis 2. what God joined together, let no one separate. He started, though, in Genesis 1. Why? Because he wanted to bring people back to the original created order of things. Say, this is how God did it. This is what I'm affirming, and I'm not changing that. That's why he went to Genesis 1, when all he needed to do to answer the question was go to Genesis 2. And with this definition of marriage, same-sex relationships are excluded. Because you already defined it by going back to Genesis 1 and 2. Do you understand? So he excluded it. Had Jesus wished to extend the right of marriage beyond this definition, here was his opportunity, and he never took it. So it, it, it's akin to this. If, if, if you people here, if, if you men here didn't know who my wife was, there's a couple different ways I could, I could show you who my wife was. I could have all the women stand up and say, well, you're not my wife, sit down. 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 You're not. And all name all the ones that aren't until they get to the one who is. Or I could say, honey, stand up. And just show you who it is. There's no need to exclude everything else because I've already identified what is. Do you understand? See, it's really not that confusing. Don't allow yourself to get confused by the rhetoric. Jesus never discussed same-sex marriage specifically because the way it had already been defined excluded it. And at the end of John chapter 2, Jesus, the Bible says Jesus didn't trust man's hearts because he knew what was in them. He knew it was in man's hearts. So Jesus saw this issue coming and he chose not to change the definition of marriage. See, our problem in our culture is that we live in an instant world and it's blinded us to long-term vision. And so we've lost sight of long-term ramifications. We've lost sight once we start changing the definition of marriage and changing the rules around it. We, we've lost sight of long-term ramifications to marriage and to family and to society. If you believe the Bible... Do you also then believe and affirm that Jesus knows the heart of man? That he died for all the sins of all the people down through history. That he knew ahead of time what men's issues would be. If if, that, if you affirm that, then he knew this issue was coming. One of the arguments that the LGBTQ community will say is that we understand things differently now than they understood back that they didn't understand gender identity and committed hom- same-sex relationships. Well, if you understand who Jesus is and that he knows the heart of man all down through history, he saw it coming. That's one issue that people bring up. The biblical authors knew nothing of homosexual homosexuality in terms of, in terms of committed, monogamous, adult-consenting relationships. They knew about homosexual practices in the form of pederasty, And temple worship and male prostitution, they knew about that, but they didn't understand gender like we understand gender. This committed, same-sex, lifelong relationship. And, And on the outset, it sounds like, well, maybe they didn't, I don't know. The pushback to that is, how can you say that? Do you know that they didn't know that? The other pushback is that the reality to that is this. In the ancient Greco-Roman world, there were many examples of people in long-term homosexual relationships. And ancient literature points to it. This was not a new concept. The Plato Symposium talks about male-male relationships and long-term relationships. It was a known thing in ancient Roman world that Emperor Nero had a long-term homosexual relationship with a man. This was not new information. In the ancient world. And to suggest that we're dealing with something in this culture that they didn't know about then has a very low view of God's sovereignty. And at best, it's a reflection of what C.S. Lewis calls chronological snobbery. Like because we're older and have more life to our culture than they did, we know more than they did. Chronological snobbery. William Loder, who's a gay New Testament scholar who's written thousands of pages and multiple books on the issue, says in his book, New Testament on Sex, there was a basic sense of sexual orientation in that culture. So don't let anybody tell you that in our culture we're doing something that the biblical culture didn't understand. It's just not true. It's just not true. I have to wonder what kind of God would one believe in if that God didn't know ahead of time about sexual orientation. I have to wonder what kind of God one would believe in if they didn't see this coming. I have to wonder what kind of God would know about this and let His people be led astray by what's written in Scripture. I've heard a lot of people on the LGBTQ side of, and, and, and in the spectrum say, you know what though, here's the bottom line, bottom line. Bottom line. Jesus hung out with outcasts and sinners. And he loved them and accepted them and so should we. Have You heard that? And it sounds on the outside like, well, well, yeah. But please understand, yes, Jesus hung out and loved them and so should we. But there's a difference between affirmational inclusion and transformational inclusion. It's a huge difference. Affirmational inclusion. We mistake Jesus' love for people with the idea of affirmational inclusion. That because of love, I affirm their lifestyles and choices because love wins. And so, in an effort to be loving, we value inclusion of all people and all things and all behaviors. And it sounds super Jesus. But Jesus' love was not affirmational inclusion. Jesus' love for me and for you and for us, for humanity, was transformational inclusion. To the woman at the well, He said, I forgive you now. Go and change your behavior. Change your life. Affirmational inclusion would have told her, hey, you know what? I love you. Keep dating whoever you want to date. Keep doing what you're doing. Just tell them about me. Affirmational inclusion would tell Matthew, the tax collector, let me tell you how to extort money a little bit better to get more income and then follow me. Jesus didn't practice affirmational inclusion. It was transformational inclusion. This is the standard. It's not changed. I love you. Let's change your life together. Jesus confronts sin while loving and he calls hearts to change. I am thankful that Jesus didn't affirm me in my sin. And I'm thankful that Jesus never affirmed me walking in a way counter to his original design for me. Now, these clobber texts. Let me start with one of them that's not listed, but one of them that every Christian would go to and talk about homosexuality. There there are a couple different types of texts in Scripture. There's narrative texts and didactic texts. Narrative texts just tell the story. Didactic texts are texts intended to teach. And I want to deal with a biblical reference that deals with the idea of homosexuality and homosexual behavior. Many people, when we talk about homosexuality in the church, go to Genesis 19. You know what that is? Sodom and Gomorrah. On one side, people would say that God condemned the city for the sin of sodomy. The LGBTQ community would say that God condemned the city for being non-hospitable. Don't chuckle. Don't chuckle. Okay, Um, Because this is a real thing. And I think we've just kind of jumped, many people jumped on a bandwagon because that's what they've heard and haven't given it much critical thought. So in the effort to be honest and biblical with critical thinking, I want to look at this regarding Sodom. Genesis 19. I don't know if I need to read the whole thing. These angels came to Sodom. Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. Lot saw him. He said, hey, how are y'all doing? And he said, hey, can we go and spend the night at your house? And when you get up, you can go on your way and... They said, no, we'll sleep here in the square. And he pressed them strongly. And he said, no, no, don't stay in the square. He took them to his house. They made a feast, baked unleavened bread, and they ate. But before they laid down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man surrounded the house. And they called out to Lot, where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them, know them sexually. Lot went out to the men at the entrance, shut the door after him, and said, I beg you, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Behold, I have... This is... I don't know if this is any better. Behold, I have two daughters who have not known a man sexually. Let me bring them to you and do to them as you please. I just can't even imagine what's going on here. Only do nothing to these men, for they've come under the shelter of my roof. That's the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. Sodom, especially. It's interesting to me that on the one side we jump on the bandwagon that said because of the sin of homosexuality, God wiped out the city. And the other side would say, no, no, it's because of the sin of of, of inhospitality because they were just mean people. Lot was so concerned about the evil of these men before the issue that eventually was raised as gang rape even came to light. You go back to Genesis 13 and he talks about how evil the society was. The sin of Sodom is not specifically specified as to why God destroyed the city. We assume from this passage that we know what it is. But just to be fair, it's not explicitly said. And those who support the LGBTQ community would say this, that it's not the issue of monogamous, consensual, loving, lifelong, same-sex marriage is not the issue here. The issue, not only in hospitality, is gang rape. And we would all agree that that's bad, right? And to prove that point that it's not consensual adult, lifelong same-sex relationship that's at issue, they go to Ezekiel 16, verse 49. And Ezekiel 16, verse 49 does say, Now this was the sin of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters were arrogant, overfed, and unconcerned. They did not help the poor and needy. Where is homosexuality in this list? as list is the sin of Sodom. So why do we assume that that's what was at issue? You see how good that sounds? Here's the problem. Because those who are making that argument don't read verse 50. They stop at 49. And verse 50 says, they were haughty and did detestable things before me. Therefore I did away with them as you have seen. That word detestable is a Hebrew word that is the exact same word used of the homosexual act as listed in Leviticus 18. It's the exact same word. But unless you understand Scripture and know what it says, it's easy to fall into. Well, maybe it wasn't that way. And if you look at the story of Sodom, both in Genesis 19 and in Ezekiel 16, you also then have to include Jude 7. And there's probably very few people in here who have read the New Testament little letter called Jude. And it's one chapter long. So Jude 1, verse 7 says literally of Sodom, they indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desires. So though not outrightly stated, it's pretty clear what part of the issue was. Right? And this issue of gang rape is another place in Scripture, and I'm not going to read the whole thing, but in Judges 19, the same issue comes up in a Levite and his concubine and the men of Gibeah. And they approach her. He throws out his concubine to her and they gang rape her throughout the night and she dies on the doorstep. It's a brutal story. And in both passages, Genesis 19 and Judges 19, both passages, there's an issue of gang rape involved and in one city was destroyed and the other was not do with that what you will but be clear part of the judgment of sodom was due to perverse sexual practices it is very clear now having said that it still doesn't deal with adult consenting monogamous same-sex lifelong relationships so we still haven't encountered that in the bible yet necessarily Outrightly so. So, here's the six clobber passages. Here's the six that they would say, if it's so important to God, why does he only deal with it six times? And none of them deal with the issue of adult consenting, same-sex, lifelong relationships. Here's the the passages. The first passage is found in Deuteronomy 23. The first of the six clobber passages. And And what I've done here is I've included... I've included what the Hebrew words mean. The Hebrew word, what they kind of mean, all throughout these six passages. So you can get an idea of what is being said here because it's not necessarily translated that way in all of the English languages. So that, that's the extra words here. But what Deuteronomy 23 says is, none of the daughters of Israel shall become a cult or shrine prostitute. Hebrew word, "kadesha." It's a feminine word. And none of the sons of Israel shall become cult shrine prostitutes, Kadesh. For both the feminine prostitute and the male prostitute are an abomination to to the Lord your God. So the issue in the first clobber passage is the idea of shrine prostitutes. And everybody, even in the LGBT community, would say, yeah, that's pretty bad. The, the, the homosexuality in the context... Of idolatry is a bad thing across the board they would agree with that and it is true that cultic same-sex prostitution was prevalent among the Canaanite Old Testament it was sometimes adopted by Israel though God strongly condemned it in the clearest of terms and the context of which of these it is shrine prostitution or the context of Israel is always clear in the passage so That's the first of the of the of the passages. Nowhere does that passage deal with monogamous, adult consenting same-sex relationships. You understand? And so, for the church to say right there, it's bad. Everyone would say, "Well, of course it is, because it's the context of idolatry, which God always condemns, and trying prostitution." But it doesn't deal with adult consenting same-sex lifelong relationships. You understand? So I'm just trying to deal with it biblically and be honest about what it says and what it doesn't say. So the church has no legs to stand on to say because of that passage, homosexuality is wrong, necessarily. So the second clobber passage is found in Leviticus 18. And the Bible says don't have... There's a long list of sexual practices that are forbidden. Don't have sexual relationships with your neighbor's wife and defile yourself with her. Do not give any of your children to be sacrificed to Molech, for you uh, must not profane the name of the Lord your God. I am the Lord. Don't have such relations with a man as one does with a woman. That's detestable. Don't have such relations with an animal and defy herself with it. A woman must not present herself to an animal to have such relations with it. That's a perversion. I mean, it's this long list of things that are prohibited. Now, the argument goes like this. Yes, it says it in certain terms there that there are certain behaviors that are off limits. Would we all agree with that? Those on the LGBTQ community would also say, well, there are other Old Testament laws that talk about not eating selfish and not trimming your beard and your sideburns. Matter of fact, you can go to Leviticus 11 and find all kinds of Old Testament laws that you neglect. Why do you choose one and ignore the other? Sounds reasonable, doesn't it? And most Christians are like, I don't know, because it's wrong. I don't know, it just is. Well, the want one of the answer, the answer is this. That God gave certain laws to Israel to keep them separate from the other nations, because he was calling out a people separate to themselves. And those are many of the dietary and cleanliness laws that he did not give to pagan communities. And God gave other laws to Israel that were based on universal moral principles that were, that were common for everybody, like the law about murder. So some laws were given just to Israel because he had to keep his people separate and clean. And they were just for Israel. Some were given to Israel, but for all of humanity. Moral principles, binding moral principles that were unchanging. So the question is, well, how do you know the difference, right? How do you know the difference? How do you know the difference between the laws in Leviticus 11 and the laws in Leviticus 18? Well, again, it's pretty easy to know the difference between the laws God gave to Israel and the laws God gave to Israel for all of humanity. And the difference is this. Does God speak the law to everyone Or is the command and the judgment only to Israel? If the command and the judgment is only to Israel, then it only pertains to Israel, specifically for the cleanliness and holiness laws. If the law pertains to everybody and the punishment is for everybody, then it is universal. For instance, the law, God's law against murder, was given... Immediately after the flood, before Israel was ever a nation, it was meant for everybody. And it was repeated in the Old Testament and the New Testament. It's a universal moral law from God. That's unchanging. The dietary laws were only given to Israel. They weren't given to everybody. Let me give you an example. Let me give you a proof. God never judged. Read the Bible. God never judged a pagan nation for violating the dietary law. Never judged them for it. Did God ever judge a pagan nation for violating the laws of murder and cruelty? Absolutely. Because some were meant for Israel and some were meant for all of humanity. Leviticus 18 are universal moral sexual principles. Wrong for all people, not just Israel. They're repeated throughout the Old Testament. The penalty for them is repeated throughout the Old Testament for everyone and they're confirmed and affirmed in the New Testament. The texts about homosexuality are so clear that one has to do incredible, tremendous mental and theological gymnastics to come up with a different conclusion. For instance, Leviticus 18.22. Do not have sexual relations with a man as one does with a woman. That is detestable. to a Very specific word. The argument is that activists, LGBTQ activists would take this verse and they would say, if you look at the verses prior to verse 21 and the context of it, the context they would say is homosexual practices connected with worship and idolatry. They would say that that, that's in the context of of idol worship. The, The answer to that is if that's true, then verse 23 doesn't make any sense. Because right after this verse is verse 23. Don't have sex relations with an animal and defy yourself with it. A woman must not present herself to an animal to have sex relations with it. That is a perversion. If it was only wrong to have sex with an animal in the context of idol worship, as they claim verse 22 is, then if it's not in the context of idol worship, it's okay to have sex with an animal would any of us say that that's what it's talking about? Not in the least. And when he uses the word perversion, it means literally it's confusing. Tebel. Which means it's a violation of the divine nature. It's a violation of the divine order. As is a man having sex with a man. The context is, between, behind all of this, of what is permitted and allowed, or prohibited, is creation. It's a violation of the divine order. And the Bible is very clear about it. Again, Leviticus 18.24. Do not defile yourselves in any of these ways. Because, listen, look, because this is how the nations that I'm going to drive out before you became defiled. Proof that these laws are universal for all humanity. Because the nations who were there before you practiced these things, that's what defiled them, and that's why I'm driving them out. It was not, they were not driven out because of the dietary laws. Do you understand? God judged the pagan Canaanite communities for these sins. Because there are universal moral prohibitions. And the Bible is very clear. Some would argue in the LGBT community that toy toyevah, meaning the, the abomination, means a ritual defilement. And many would suggest it doesn't mean moral defilement. It means a ritual defilement. Like you can see, this will be morally okay. You're just ritually not able to go to the temple in the Old Testament days. And the truth is that it can mean either one of those. Moral defilement or ritual defilement. But the context is always the interpreter. God never destroyed pagan nations based on ritual defilement. Nor did God ever judge and destroy pagan people's society because of ritual defilement. He never did it nor did God ever give the death penalty simply for ritual defilement. In Leviticus 20, those are the laws in Leviticus 18. You go to Leviticus 20, and it gives you the punishment for all the sins listed in Leviticus 20. And in Leviticus 20, the punishment for the sins listed in Leviticus 18, the punishment listed in Leviticus 20, verse 13, is death. And God never gave the death penalty simply for ritual defilement. It was always for moral defilement. In the context of homosexual relationship, verse eighteen, Leviticus eighteen twenty-two, it's very clear: Do not lie with. It's the Hebrew word shakab means literally to go to bed with or and have sex. Don't have sex with a male person. Zakar used in Genesis one when God created male. Don't have sex with a male person as one does with a woman. Isha. In Genesis 1, when God created a female, Isha. The Bible's very clear. It's not talking about ritual defilement, it's not talking about temple worship. He's talking about the act of a man having sex with a man in the way that a man would have sex with a woman. It's very clear. And and it's clear that the Bible is not condemning, hear me on this, not condemning the man having sex with a man. It's condemning the very act of a man having sex with a man, which then, because of the act, condemns the man. It's the act that's at stake here. Same-sex cultic prostitution was common in the pagan Canaanite communities. But this prohibition, and, and, and that's what we saw in the Deuteronomy 23 passage, but this prohibition is not that Don't lie with a man. And this is not about pederasty. This is not about a man having sex with a boy. Nowhere in the text does the Hebrew use the word boy. It's talking about a man. Don't lie with a man, not a boy. That's why it uses the same word that God is used in the creation account when God made them as a man. If In Leviticus 18, if the prohibition of homosexuality doesn't apply in Leviticus 18, if it doesn't apply to the act of homosexuality, then there must also then be no prohibition against incest and no prohibition against sex with animals. Would any of us say that either of those are okay? It's the same law for both. That One of the new cultural shifts that's coming, one of the new cultural sexual shifts that's coming Is consensual adult incest. That's what's coming next. Where two grown family members engage in consensual loving relationship and sex. Is that right or wrong? Why? If a father and his adult daughter say they're in love, and they're monogamous with each other, where's the prohibition? If an adult son with his mother say that they're in love, where's the prohibition? If a son, if a brother and sister say they're in love, where's the prohibition? If it's consensual and loving, what's wrong? Let me tell you how quickly this seeps into our society. If any of you watch Game of Thrones, here in church, you're like, no, I'm <laughs> <laughs> Brother, sister, two of the main characters. Consensual, adult, monogamous sex. You go back a few years when I was young, and you go back to shows like Will and Grace. And it was like, ah, it's a funny show, but that'll never be. And now Scripture's being changed to support it. So, if, it's, if incest isn't prohibited here because you want to claim that homosexual isn't prohibited here, then neither is incest. Do you understand? Chesterton said this, you never take down a fence till you know why it's been put up. And once we begin to redefine marriage and sexual relations, how can you say to any of them that any of them are wrong? Because when love is love, where's the prohibition if I call it love? And I'm not being mean. Do you understand? The third clobber passage. Leviticus 20. If a man-ish lies with shikab a male person... Or oh, sorry, if a man ish lies with shikab, that means to have sex with a male person in the car, as one does with a woman, ishah. Both of them have committed an abomination, toyaba. The specific prohibition is about the act of male-on-male sex. It's not about temple prostitution. That word is not used. Like it was used in Deuteronomy 23. It is truly and solely about male-on-male sex. And the Bible says it's an abomination. And it's contrary to nature. So those are the three clobber passages in the Old Testament. Now, so far, none of them have dealt with consensual, monogamous, you know, lifelong, same-sex marriage. And that's the argument. But it is very clear that it's just not the relationship that God's dealing with. He's talking about the act, regardless of the relationship. Do you understand? It's the act. So... There are three copper passages in the New Testament. One of the most forceful statements against homosexuality in Scripture is Romans 1. And, and, and I just want to unpack Romans 1 for you. And I am not going to spend a lot of time on some of this stuff. I just want to set the stage. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of humankind. The Greek word is anthropos. It means all of humanity who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth, for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made so that we are all without excuse. Here's the thing. What he's doing here is setting the stage. He's setting the stage that what he's about to say is comprehensive and inclusive of all humanity. And that the character and nature of God can be clearly seen in creation. Genesis 1 and 2. It's interesting to me that Jesus and Paul go back to Genesis 1 and 2 time and time again. And he says that people can clearly see who God is and what his standard is so that we are all without excuse. And Paul goes back to creation as the model. And he contrasts the creation nature, the nature of creation, with unrighteous behavior. So that's how he sets the stage. And then he goes on. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal human beings, anthropos again, and birds and animals and creeping things. Here's why this is important. Because Paul is saying that humanity has enough revelation and general knowledge of God to glorify Him as God, but we choose not to. And Paul uses, this is very important, Paul uses the exact same verbiage and process recorded in Genesis 1 in the creation account when he says birds and animals and creeping things. He uses the exact same words. Now, it's translated from Hebrew to Greek in the Septuagint, and he's using those exact same words that are used in Genesis 1 to draw people back to the creation account. And he says straight from Genesis 1, the same order that's listed in Genesis 1 of creation, birds, animals, reptiles. And what he's doing is he's drawing people back to God's created order and nature of things, which is what? The same thing that Jesus drew people back to, which is what? Male and female. In a sexual, lifelong relationship called marriage. Do you understand? It's the exact same words. And he goes on. Therefore, God gave them up in their lust of their hearts and impurity to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen when he says dishonoring their bodies, the implication is sexual impurity in all of its forms. Not just the homosexual act, in all of its forms. Now, the the difficult thing is that in the contemporary debate about homosexuality, the questions focus on these texts, on what is prohibited. Did God specifically prohibit this thing? Did God specifically prohibit adult, consensual, lifelong, same-sex relationships? And they would say, no, He never specifically prohibited the context of that relationship. To be balanced and authentic, though, and to be logical, we have to consider explicit prohibitions and explicit affirmations and the creation model and nowhere in those is any of that affirmed paul goes on for this reason god gave them up to their dishonorable passions even their women greek word thalos female exchange with that which is natural phusikos natural native physical for that which is contrary to nature phusikos same word and the men arsēn male this is going to be important for what he's going to say in a minute Likewise, gave up that which is natural, same word, for with women, phalos, same word, and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameful acts with other men, same word, men on men, and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. The argument for the LGBT community would say, we agree, it's wrong to exchange the natural for the unnatural. However, this is how they explain it. They say, if I'm a heterosexual man, it's unnatural for me to have homosexual encounters. They would affirm that. And as a heterosexual man, as I walk away from God, God gives me over to homosexual behavior. That's unnatural. And we would say, absolutely, it's unnatural. They would say, however, if I was born gay in a monogamous, committed relationship with another man, that's not unnatural for me. That's natural. Because I was born that way. It's natural for me. What's unnatural for me would be to force myself into a heterosexual relationship because I wasn't born that way. That's how they explain what natural and natural is. What's contrary to nature that Paul is saying here is heterosexual men engaging in homosexual behavior. Temple prostitution, pederasty, those types of things. Do you see what I'm saying about mental gymnastics? It just doesn't make sense. So the answer to that in Paul's writing here is that's not how Paul uses the term contrary to nature. And it's interesting that for centuries before the sexual revolution, no one interpreted Scripture this way. No one. And Paul uses words in Romans 1, translated from the Hebrew text of Genesis 1, male and female, he created them. He uses the exact same words and the same terms of the creation account. Genesis 1 is the standard. And it has never moved. And everything outside that is contrary to nature, i.e. God's order, It's the contrary of the way God created things in creation as male and female and nothing has ever moved. And Paul is drawing our attention to the natural order of things from creation as listed in Genesis 1 with the exact same words. Male and female in relationship with each other, both sexes in companionship to create the full image of God. The Bible is very clear. In our modern questions of homosexuality, it seems to be that the behaviors and the idea and the talk and discussion about it centers on the issue of feelings. I know that's what that says, but I feel as though I was born this way. Now, I don't want to trivialize feelings, but this is a modern idea, and feelings is not a picture we see in Scripture as a rule for life. When, 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 when through Paul, Jesus gave the command, husband, love your wife. Love her as Christ loved the church. Give up your life. Or that is not predicated on feeling. It's a command regardless of feeling. And the husband is to make love an action and a decision not based on how he feels. Do you understand? So biblically, feelings have nothing to do with this. But that's where we get into such the rub. Paul goes on. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They were full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They were gossip, slanders, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to the parents, foolish, faithfulness, heartless. Has he left anybody out? Though they knew God's, though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to, get, to die, they not only do them but give approval to those who practice them. See, he says we're all counted in this list, and all of humanity stands guilty. And there is great penalty for those who practice repeatedly the things listed on this list. But pay attention. There's equal penalty for those who affirm those who practice what's on this list. Do you understand? Do you understand? So our question is, how do we welcome those who are on this list but not affirm the activities of this list? Nor affirm those who live in active practice of these things. That's what being a Christian is. There's, here's the fifth clobber passage that's used. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11. Do you not know that the unjust will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, pornos, that's where we get our word pornography, it's every sexual activity outside of the context of marriage, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor malakos, which means literally effeminate, soft, passive men or boys who have sex with men. That's what that word means. Nor arsenikoitos, which means literally men who have sex with men. Nor thieves, nor greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified. Paul uses these terms. Malakos and arsenikoitos. And he coined those terms based on other Greek words, but he came up with those terms and uses them explicitly. Homosexual practice is condemned without a doubt in the context of cult prostitution and prostitution in general, but it's not limited to that context. The word arsenicoitas comes from two words. And we've seen these words already in Scripture. The word arson, which means man, and koitas, which means sex. Men's sex with men. The Greek term that is used in Leviticus 20 in the prohibitions about homosexual sex. He uses the exact... He puts those words together, men and sex, arson and koitas, and creates this word to say all the way back to Leviticus 20, this is what is condemned. Paul goes all the way back to Leviticus 20 to reinforce the, in the New Testament and creates this word arsenokoitos, and it is wrong. And the fact that he uses Malachos, this is the soft passive role, with arsenokoitos, the male dominant role. In this one text, he says both roles in homosexual Man-on-man sex is prohibited and defiled. Do you understand? Malakos, soft, passive, receiving. arsenicoitas, male-on-male. The active role. He coins the terms and calls them out. And he says both of them are condemned. But I love the fact how Paul ends. That's what some of you were. But, you've been washed and sanctified and justified. There is complete redemption and renewal for everybody in Christ. And this act that Paul talks about here, of this homosexual sex act, is not in the context of pederasty. He uses the terms of men, not boys. It's not in terms of idol worship. That's nowhere mentioned in this passage. It's not heterosexual men engage in homosexual sex. This is purely about homosexual sex in all its forms. That's what he's talking about. Now note this. Never with Jesus nor Paul is there ever a lessening of the law. Talked about that this morning. When asked about adultery, Jesus goes back to the Old Testament law that made a, a prohibition And he made that more stringent. He said, it's not just about adultery. It's about lust in your heart. And he always, Jesus and Paul both always raised the standard and heightened it and offered mercy and grace for the breaker of the law but never downplayed the law. Do you understand? And Paul says, do you not know That the unjust will not inherit the kingdom of God. And those two words, malachos, effeminate, that's what it means. It can be used of a catamite, which is a boy kept for homosexual practices by an older, more powerful man. It can mean a male who submits his body to unnatural lewdness and sex with a man. Or it can mean a male prostitute. I mean, all those things. And arsenokoitos is one who lies with the males with the female in specifically the active role. And both of those terms are used exclusively in the homosexual act. Both passive and active. And God says it's an abomination. It's unnatural in the clearest of terms. But some of you were. It's not an issue. I was born that way and always be that way. So some of you were. God can receive us just as we are and bring about His transformative love, not His affirmational inclusion, and enable us to become who we're created to be. The fulfillment of His image and His holiness. Do you understand? It's very clear. There's one more clobber passage, as they call it. And it's in 1 Timothy 1. Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lo- lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, and for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers for murderers, the sexually immoral, pornos, again, men who have sex with men, coitas. this is the term that he coined, coitas enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. The prohibitions of homosexual sex in Leviticus 18, Leviticus 20, and in 1 Corinthians 6 are all reinforced in the same broad context that Paul lays out for Timothy in 1 Timothy 1. It's very clear. Nowhere is there a lessening of it. Nowhere is there a change of direction. When you look at the broader context of all the statements, coupled with the idea of creation and the created order, for me, it compels me to come to the conclusions that I've come to on this issue. The same conclusions that the Bible and the church has held on this issue for generations and eons. It's not just enough to look at, are the negative statements negative enough, but rather to put the statements in the context of the creation model, how we were created to be a reflection of God's image regarding gender and homosexuality and gay activity. And I can come to no other conclusion that according to Scripture, it is, has always been and will be, contrary to God's standard, and is not at any level compatible with Scripture. To this statement, what those in the LGBT community will say is this. Isn't it unfair that God would ask us so much of those struggling with homosexuality? Because what you're saying then Whether I'm born this way or not, science says I'm not born this way. But whether I am or not, if this is how I feel like I'm wired and the Bible is uncategorically against it, I am destined to a life of celibacy, never to experience oneness in marriage. Is that fair? And this is where the issue becomes a person, right? And this is where those we know that struggle with this, it becomes real hard for us to say, yep. That's what that means. But please understand that Jesus requires everything of all of us. And what Jesus has said is deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. Any desire that is outside the parameters of Scripture are the desires we must deny ourselves of. Sexual or not. See, we come come from the wrong gospel foundation when we say or believe things like this, this is who I am, this is how I feel, and God wants me to be happy. That's a wrong gospel foundation. The right gospel foundation is this, I know who God is, I know how God feels, and I want to please Him. Jesus has required everything from all of us. But the problem in the church is this. Why doesn't this click? The problem in the church, click my next thing if you can. The problem in the church is, it, is that the church has made the issue about homosexuality. The issue is not about homosexuality. You got that slide back there, Jeff? The, the, the issue we've made the issue a homosexual issue, and the issue is not homosexuality. The issue, rather than being about homosexuality, the issue is about holiness, not homosexuality. And this is the issue for every one of us. The issue is about being set apart from the cultural norms and standards. And this is why no Christian, can be more judgmental about the issue of homosexuality than they are about anything else. Because the issue is about holiness that we all have to deal with. The issue is that we seek only to live a holy life. And out of that desire to draw closer to God and submit to the authority of Scripture for plainly what it says, and out of that submission, God creates new life. Do you understand? So can we say that homosexuality is wrong and gay marriage is not consistent with biblical standard? Without a doubt. Without a doubt. With great confidence and authority. But we do it as one who also struggles with being holy. Do you understand? So there's got to be sensitivity to it with an unchanging position the goal for a happy and fulfilled life is not necessarily marriage. And for those who struggle with homosexuality and homosexual attraction, to tell them yes, it means for you that you live celibate. You know, there was another man who lived celibate and did pretty well. His name was Jesus. And The fulfilled life does not happen solely in the context of marriage. Because there's plenty of heterosexual married couples who are not living a, a fulfilled life. So that ain't the cure all the time. I mean, for me it is, but... Every one of us needs to repent and draw close to God and to submission to His Word. If I'm wrong in any of this, please show me it from Scripture. I'll gladly change my mind if you can show me from Scripture. Because I can be corrected, but correct me from Scripture. And if you've ever vacillated on this idea, I hope that you were able to see from Scripture what it actually says. Now, let me say this last thing. No one goes to hell because of being homosexual. And I know that because no one goes to heaven for being heterosexual. Do you understand? Let's be biblical. Let's be biblical. The only thing that puts one outside of God's grace is denying our brokenness and denying the Lordship of Jesus over every aspect of our lives, including our sexuality and our identity. Ultimately, the issue is not about homosexuality, it's about holiness. And to try to convince someone out of homosexual attraction is damaging and disingenuous. The goal is not to convince someone dealing with homosexual attraction to act Heterosexually, because that is not salvation. The goal is someone struggling with the pull of homosexuality is to act holy. Do you understand? Which means submitting to what God's word clearly says. And if it means celibate, it means celibate. You can have community without marriage. And to bring ourselves under submission to what God's Word clearly teaches. Let me be very clear about this. It is the stance of this church that homosexuality is not at any level compatible with Scripture. Though one can have homosexual attraction and desires and love Jesus. You know how I know? Because I have sexual attraction heterosexually and love Jesus. Do you understand? Attraction is not the issue. No. Hopefully that answered some questions or gave you some information about what we believe and about what Scripture teaches. I am more than happy to try to entertain some questions and some answers once we can officially conclude this. Um, Having said that, let me say this, that we will be very um, firm and unchanging on this issue of homosexual relationships. But we will also be very unchanging and firm on heterosexual relationships that are outside the parameters of Scripture. Shacking up together, sex outside of marriage, pornography on the computer, all of that. Do you understand? Just because it's heterosexual doesn't make it less sinful. Do you understand? Now, having said that, I have to reiterate, it comes with a great deal of mercy and grace. For those who admit I know it's wrong and I'm submitting myself to God and working for change. When that's in place, we're good. Not that you have to be good with me, but you're good with God. I know it's wrong. I'm working to bring it under submission to God and His Word. And He's working with me on it. So be patient. And it's okay. You understand? That's mercy and grace fleshed out in the context of this church. And that's why we can have everybody listed in all those things a part of this church. Because that's what some of us were. But we've been washed and cleansed and bought back at a very great price. Do you understand? Let me pray. Father, thank you.